Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, today's uh, verses I will be reading is 1 Corinthians, verse, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 to 24. So I'll give you some time to, you know, find that one. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have the authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and then the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them just as God has called them. This is why the rule I lay down in all churches was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You are bought at peace, at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Uh, If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. I'm the pastor here at City Light Church North Adelaide, uh, or lead pastor, that is. And uh, I serve as lead pastor among a plurality of elders. We're led by a bunch of people. Um, But uh, it's nice to see you this morning. Um, I, uh, you know, bring good news. Richmond won the AFL Grand Final. And uh, I've been celebrating that for a whole week, which has been great, and continue to do so. But apologies if you don't support Richmond, which is pretty much everyone in the room, apart from my family. Um, we, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how you felt as that passage of scripture was read out this morning, um, but uh, there in it is good news, uh, and it is the kindness of the Lord uh, that we have it, 
and, and that's the kindness of the Lord that we all need. Uh, so I can encourage you to keep 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, 1 uh, through to most of that part we, we read, open in front of you, whether it's on your device or in a, a paper Bible or one of the Bibles we have here. There's some on the back table or lying around. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how you felt as that was read out. I don't know how uh, you're feeling. There's, um, there's all sorts of stuff going on in our church family at the moment. There is um, someone on this side of the church who's ready to give birth any minute now. Um, and uh, there's also, there's people grieving the recent loss of a loved one in our, fam- in our church family as well. Um, so there's lots on our minds. Um, so let me pray. Oh, sorry, I should say, that's Eloise. Um, Eloise Medhurst's grandfather died. Um, just recently, and so that's just, um, yeah, really acute in her life right now. Um, but uh, we should pray, hey? Let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Uh, Lord, we know uh, we live in a world that, um, uh, yeah, is confused like uh, everyone. Um, we are distorted beings. None of us think perfectly. None of us think perfectly and clearly. So, Father, as we come to this sensitive passage in your Word this morning, we pray, uh, Father, that yeah, we would be willing to sit under your word and submit ourselves to your truth. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd help us to talk kindly and patiently with one another about how this word works out and applies in our marriages, in our relationships, and in our church family. Uh, so, Father, help us now, we pray, as we um, yeah, sit under your word, uh, that by your spirit and through this word, you'd help us to see, hear, and, and love Jesus. And Father, throw ourselves afresh into his beautiful hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I wasn't here last week, but last week was sort of Compassion Sunday. But up until that point, we've been working our way through this letter of 1 Corinthians, a letter that the Apostle Paul, a man saved by the, the radical grace and wonderful mercy of God on the Damascus Road, that he wrote to a church in Corinth in about the year A.D. 55. The section that we're in at the moment, chapters 5 through to 7, uh, the book itself is broken up into about 16 chapters, so we're in this section 5 to 7. Um, Paul is responding to a bunch of questions that the church has communicated to him via other letters, and it's all to do this section with sex and relationships. Um, so you see in chapter 7, verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And a number of times in this chapter and in the sort of chapter 8 and following, uh, there are different questions or different situations that are coming up and that Paul's responding to, that the church has raised. And in this section, it's all about sex, sexual relationships within marriage. Um, I don't know about you and how you felt personally as it was read by Nick just before. Of course, I'm highly conscious that I'm speaking to a room, I'm the pastor of a, a church where there are unhappy marriages. I'm preaching to a room where I'm sure there are, I know there are people who are experiencing unhappy singleness. Uh, where some of us have been abandoned by their spouse, um, where people as kids were abandoned by their parents, where many have seen their parents maybe separate and divorce. Some of us are grieving childlessness, some of us miscarriage, some of us sickness that prevents sexual relations. And there's lots of pain. Which is why, of course, this section is here in the Bible to try and help us in our pain 
and confusion and things like that. If you were here um, a couple of weeks ago, right at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul declared this. He said, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour the Lord. Glorify the Lord with your, with your bodies. And chapter 7 continues that theme where we're called to honour God with your body, whether you're married or whether you're unmarried. And to be utterly simplistic this morning, um, if you are married, you honour your body with, by having frequent sex within your marriage. If you are single or unmarried, you honour God with your body by abstaining from sex. And there's a headline straight away that doesn't cause much glee, right, in a room like this. I want to ask you to be patient this morning as we work our way through this text. Uh, this week, in the first half of the chapter, we're, we're thinking about issues to do with marriage. Next week, we're thinking about issues to do with singleness or being unmarried. Um, really, the two go together, right? But the way we're going to work it is that we're going to do sort of marriage this week and then singleness in the week to come. Um, so you turn to this text, right, and Paul is addressing questions that the Corinthians are already asking, and they're possibly not questions that we are kind of asking, right? There's some stuff going on in Corinth that we don't quite get. Um, there's a context that we, uh, that we haven't got all of. Um, if, you, if you look ahead to chapter 7, verse 26, Paul says, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. So if you're single, stay single, Paul would say. If you're married, stay married. That phrase, remain in the state you are in, comes up five times in the chapter. Uh, what is the present crisis? We don't really know. We don't quite know everything from the side of the church at Corinth, the believers at Corinth. We've only kind of got Paul's kind of answering or what he is saying back to them. And of course, our culture, right, is a little bit different probably to the culture to which Paul is writing to, right? Paul's writing into AD 55. You're sitting here today, first day of November. Can you believe that? AD 2020. Bring on the end of 2020, right? No. Um, well, this, you know, 50, AD 55, AD 2020. Culture probably is a little bit different. Um, Esther Perel, right? Um, here's a photo of Esther coming up on the screen. There she is. Um, Esther Perel, she's a best-selling author. She's a sex therapist. She's a pretty famous TED talker. Um, she wrote this book, um, 2017, I think it was, The State of Affairs. Um, really interesting book. And, and here's her summary of where we are at culturally. I wonder what you make of this. Is this a fair summary? She says... We used to marry and then have sex for the first time. Now we marry and have to stop having sex with others. We used to think monogamy meant one person for life. Now we see monogamy as one person at a time. It used to be till death do us part. Today you marry until love dies. Fair? There's lots of truth in that, I think, of our current culture. You come to a text like this, right, and in the end, men and women, we remain sexual beings, fallen ones, and so we need God's word as he's spoken through the Apostle Paul. So the question we're asking, if you have your Bible open, the question that the Corinthians are kind of asking, they're saying, chapter 7, verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally there, in the original, it's, it is not good for a man to touch a woman, now, I think it's unlikely the Corinthians are asking, 
like, Paul, is it good to stop having sex altogether? Should we just like stop having sex? I reckon, that's, I reckon it's unlikely. The context would suggest that's unlikely. Based on chapter 6, they've been having sex all over the place outside of marriage, right? What then is this question asking? What are they asking? Well, one striking thing is, is actually about the way it's phrased. Chapter 7, verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. That's unusual in this chapter, actually. Every other issue Paul stresses in this chapter, it's reciprocal, right? There's a reciprocal nature in all the relationships, man and woman. Uh, So verse 3, a husband should fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise his wife to her husband. Reciprocal. Verse 10, to the married, here is the command. A wife must not separate from her husband. Verse 11, a husband not from his wife. Verse 12, if a Christian brother has a wife who is not a believer, she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Verse 13, woman, just the same. Every time in this chapter, it's men and women the same. The same kind of idea, reality applies to both. Here in chapter 7, verse 1, it's different. The other interesting thing into this time suggests, um, into the, to think about here is the verb to touch a woman is actually slang. If you were back in the year AD 55, it's sort of slang, it's an idiom. It's like a phrase known to the people and the culture at the time. If you're writing it today, this is how you would translate it, right? Um, It is not good for a man to shag a woman. Forgive me for saying that, right? It's cheap language. What are the Corinthians asking? They're saying, so Paul, you've said that um, sex is only for marriage. So I just want to check on that. So men aren't allowed to just go around and gratify their desires elsewhere. Is that what you're saying? Now, that might seem like a strange question to us, right? But in the Greco-Roman culture of the time, um, there was a lot of sex going on outside of marriage. You know, if you were married, there was sort of almost this sense of which, you know, you'd have sex with your wife, but then you'd have a mistress who you'd have sex with, and you'd have, you'd have sex with your slaves. That would be just normal. That's culture. So they're saying to Paul, so Paul, you're saying we've got to stop all that. All that stuff we've been doing for a long time, you've got to stop that. Just to clarify, you're saying we're only allowed to have sex with our wives in the context of marriage because, I mean, every bloke I know goes around like having sex with his mistress. That's all got to go, does it? And Paul's like, yep, yep. Only one place for sex, with your spouse, inside marriage, that's it. And I think that is the question that has the headline over all these this chapter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations touch a woman. That's why it's one way, man to woman. Just getting that sorted. Four sections today, right? Four sections today we're going to think about. Um, I haven't got time to do them all justice, but hopefully they'll be clear, right? Um, this is what we're going to break the chapter down into four big sections. The first one is verses 2 to 7. If you're married, here it is, if you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. There you go. We could probably just move on from there, right? That's pretty much verses 2 to 7. It's not good for a man to touch a woman, okay? All right, first answer, verse 2. Have a look with me, verse 2. Since, Paul says, sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Now, look, we address this in chapter 6. There is sexual immorality. Some of the Corinthians are sleeping around with prostitutes. You become a Christian 
But some of you haven't realized that that's not consistent with God's vision for your new life, God's vision for how you're to use your new body. Some of you are still sleeping with your staff. That's, that's got to go now, Paul says. But you've got to have sex in your marriage, Paul says. That's the place for sex, to express those desires, those good desires. The gist of these verses, right, is the way for married people to avoid sexual immorality is to have regular sex with your spouse. Now, you might think, Paul doesn't really express it in very romantic ways, all right? Have a look with me um, how he expresses it in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. It's like, hello, wife, reporting for duty. You know, that's pretty much what it is. doesn't sound very romantic at all, does it? But it is a duty. It's very striking language Paul uses in verse 5. Do not deprive each other. The verb in the original language for deprive actually means cheat or defraud. It's the same verb Paul used in, when he was talking about lawsuits back in chapter 6, verse 8. Paul wrote, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. You're defrauding your brothers and sisters, Paul says. Um, it's the same verb, chapter 7, verse 5. Don't defraud, don't cheat. It's the same verb James, the brother of Jesus, uses when he writes in James chapter 5. He's talking about employees defrauding their staff of their wages. You know, right, I'm thinking George Columbaris right now, you know. Um, that's what he's thinking. You're cheating your staff. Paul says... You're not giving to the other what you promised to give. And here is a recognition from Paul, right? When you marry, the day that you stand up in, in front of church, in the front of a church or wherever you got married, on your wedding day, you make a promise to do a number of things. You promise on that day, amongst all those things, to have regular sex with your spouse. Just for the record, right, when I got married to Adele, we'd been married for almost 18 years, I didn't say that, you know, like, but implicit in the vows is that. I promise, you know, like when we got married, you know, we said we become one flesh. It's not just a physical thing, but it is physical. And you say within your vows, with my body, I honour you to the other person. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Not just your cooking skills, not just your credit card debt, not just, in my case, all my Richmond merchandise. No, I promise to sh you promise to share you. You promise to share you, all of you. It's striking, isn't it, that the modern idiom that we have for cheating on your spouse is to have an extramarital affair which is, you know, like, which Paul would say, don't do that. But in Paul's language, to cheat on your spouse is to deprive them of sex. That's cheating. Of course, right, I guess this can go wrong, right, broadly in two ways. First, don't deprive your spouse of sex. Paul says don't do it. Verse 5, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Okay, if, you, if your prayer life is absolutely cranking, if that's the reason you're not having sex, then that's okay, but only for a short time. Don't deprive each other. It's got to be by mutual consent, right? I think that's really interesting. Paul, the apostle, he's no 
kind of prude when it comes to sex. He's expecting that married couples are kind of talking about how often they're having sex in their sex lives. You know, I don't know, I don't want to get into a conversation, right? But, you know, are we having enough sex? Well, yes, but I think we should have a rest this week and pray every night. Okay, that sounds okay, but let's get back to it on Sunday. That's, come on, there you go. Um, they're having a conversation about it. I wonder if you're married, are you? Are we? Am I? If you're married, are you chatting about this stuff? On the one hand, there is depriving your spouse of sex. The other mistake, though, we must think about is that you cannot demand sex if you're married. The obligation here is to give love, not demand sex. So verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. It's a gift. You can't demand it. Don't do that. Along with the promise on your wedding day to have sex with your spouse is the promise that you will love your spouse in sickness and in health, in richer when you're poorer, for better or for worse, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. Having said that, there are reasons, there are seasons in, in every marriage where sex can be incredibly hard. Physical difficulties, emotional blockages, stress and anxiety, sometimes mechanical problems. Um, I, I can think of a couple who I know who got married and they didn't consummate their marriage for three years. It just didn't work. And they felt all kinds of shame and awfulness around that. They, they didn't want to talk about it. It was big. There are problems, right? Sometimes at the beginning there can be problems and later on there can be problems trying to have children, after having children. But you're never allowed to demand sex if you're married. You're commanded to be sensitive and kind and to love. And remember your vows. Will you love her, him? Will you comfort, honour, protect, forsaking all others, be faithful to her or to him as long as you both shall live? But on your wedding day, you promise to serve one another with your body. What does that mean for you? I don't know. I don't know what it means for you particularly. I mean, do you enjoy talking about this with your spouse? You don't have to answer that question now. Um, I, th I think if you enjoy talking about this stuff with your spouse, you're rare. Um, so if you do find it hard, I don't know, if you're married, find some time, open a bottle of wine, um, have a glass or two, and then talk. Create some space, because regular sex is part of a healthy marriage, and infrequent sex means you're cheating on one another. You're depriving the marriage of the emotional connection that it needs. So if you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. Let's move to point two. If you're a couple, marry rather than burn. <laughs> Wake up, Australia. Um, verses seven to nine. Um, verse seven kind of moves between kind of two, this, these two opening sections. Uh, so verse seven, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Um, is he saying, you know, single or married? I think he means be content in whatever situation you kind of are in. Um, 
Be thankful. But certainly, verses 8 to 9, uh, verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Hmm. Verse 8, it is good for them to stay unmarried. Okay, Paul, should everyone remain single like you? No. But you may want to consider it, I think that's what Paul is saying. But verse 9, if you can't control yourself, marry. Seriously? The only reason for these guys to marry is because they're sinning, they're burning with passion? That, that, that doesn't sound right to you, right? That doesn't sound right. Well, it's not. If marriage was the only, here's the thing, right? If marriage was the only refuge for burning with sexual passion, then I think all of us should have gotten married when we were about 13, 14, or 15, right? The first person you lusted over. And I reckon that would have been far from ideal. Don't think back to that person right now because you'll get distracted. I think that would have not been the greatest thing. It's not quite as simplistic as that. The Bible is clear that marriage between a man and a woman has many purposes. It's for companionship in our work, Genesis chapter 1. It's for bringing up children, Genesis chapter 1. It's for pleasure, song of songs. It's for spurring one another on to live for Jesus and love like Jesus, Ephesians chapter 5. It's a good gift from God. So what is Paul talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, verse 9 doesn't really come across super well in our English translations, but verse 9 literally says, if they do not control themselves, that's present tense in their language, they should marry. Paul in verse 9 is describing an ongoing situation. If they're a dating couple in our kind of modern vernacular and they can't control them, well, maybe it's time for that situation to end and they should just tie the knot, get married. Now again, the Bible has heaps more to say on this subject, but if you're a Christian and you're dating and you're sexually active, well, one, uh, chapter 6 would say, flee, stop it, repent. That's what chapter 6 would say. How about dating and being pure? Why not give that a go? That would be much better. But if you're persuaded, right, you know, I really like this person, I'm going to marry them, well, just get on with it. You know, that's Paul's advice here. To the dating couple, get on with it rather than choose immorality. So if you're a couple, marry rather than burn. The third group he addresses, point three, if you're a married Christian, don't divorce for another. Don't divorce for another. Verses 10 to 11, see verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. Note that, not I but the Lord. Jesus, right, when he was, you know, it's God in the flesh, when he, became, when he came into the world, when he spoke and he acted, and Jesus had a lot to say about divorce. That's what he's talking about here. Um, Mark 10, Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 19, plenty of times where Jesus talks about divorce. Paul is saying, look, I'm just reminding you about what Jesus said before. So verse 10 continues, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Don't divorce. But if you do, you cannot remarry. I presume that the context here is that someone in the church is having an adulterous affair and thinks, well, if I just get a divorce, 
I can just marry the person who I'm having an affair with and legitimise the adultery. No, you can't. It's not an option. There's no no fault divorce in the scriptures. It doesn't exist. If you divorce, you're single. And Paul gives pretty binary choices, right, doesn't he, in verse 11? If you get a divorce, you have two choices. You remain unmarried or you get reconciled. They're the choices. Marry a new person, not an option. It's simple. Any exceptions? Yes. Not that Paul goes into detail here, but there are two exceptions in the Bible. Uh, The first, Jesus declares himself, actually, um, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, um, that adultery breaks the marriage bond. Uh, Jesus says this, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, pretty sure that Jesus has in mind their adultery in the context, and marries another woman, commits adultery. You see, there's something about the nature of adultery that breaks a covenant. It breaks an expression of how God treats his own people. Adultery can cause a marriage to end. It may mean people can marry again, maybe, but it's not always straightforward. The other exception that we have in the Bible is in verse 15. We'll come to that in a moment. Paul's point here is that divorce is a last resort and ought to be really rare. You simply can't declare, you know, a marriage has gone stale, I'm out. Or you can't just say, well, we just don't get along anymore. And, well, they're not grounds for divorce. To do that is is sinful and you cannot remarry. Um, Some of you know, I I used to work in the Anglican church. Um, I used to be a pastor in the Anglican church. And as an organisation locally, nationally, globally, the Anglican church is a little bit all over the place when it comes to sexual ethics. Um, but in many ways, they get this right. You know, when I was an Anglican pastor, I was not legally allowed to remarry someone who'd been divorced. So if someone, if a couple came to me who hadn't been divorced before, no worries, I, you know, I can, I can marry them. But if someone came to me and they had been divorced, I, I had to fill in heaps of paperwork, And it was only on the permission of the local bishop that I was allowed to marry that person to the other person. There was this check, right? It was a healthy thing. It was biblical. Paul's big idea here is that marriage should be preserved wherever possible. We've got to uphold that. But at the same time, you have to hold on to another truth here, right? The Bible calls us to protect the vulnerable. There are some in this church and many who I've known historically who've been in families where they've witnessed violence from their father towards their mum or they themselves have experienced violence at the hands of their own husbands. And I've met a number of people, men and women, who've, and particularly women, who've been given advice from their Christian pastor that says this, you've got to stay. And I've got to be clear with you, that is rubbish advice. That is horrific advice. Simply condoning sin and encouraging wickedness. There are occasions where in order to protect the vulnerable, you've got to say, leave your marriage, get out. 
They're rare, but it's right. Normally, we are to do what we can to preserve marriage. Now, for most, right, we'd, we'd say, you know, if you're talking about your marriage, in most of the marriages, we'd say there's no violence, but this marriage thing is really hard. It's quite a difficult thing. Does it get easier over time? Does marriage get easier over time? I think it ebbs and flows, right? If I think about my own marriage, it ebbs and flows. Some days there are good days, some days there are bad days. Some days there are good months, bad months. Sometimes there are good decades, challenging decades. But do what it takes, says Paul. Work hard. Stick at your marriage. Most of us, if you're married, most of us, if you're honest, at some stage want to get out of that marriage, I reckon. Most people do. Most people I know who are married are tempted to wander, to have an affair. Don't do it. If you're a married Christian, you don't divorce. Not for another. And the last group are slightly different. Um, If you're married to a not yet believer, don't divorce them. Verse 12 to 17. And have a look at verse 12. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Here seems to be the issue, right? Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. You are not defiled, seems to be the idea at Corinth. Stick with your spouse. Verse 15 seems to take a little tangent. But if the unbeliever leaves, uh, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Um, a friend of mine, um, his mother became a Christian in her 60s. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, she turned to Christ in her 60s. About five years after um, his mum turned to Christ, her, his father got cancer, became really, really, really unwell. Um, uh, my friend's dad was always extremely hostile to the Christian faith, uh, hated any talk about Jesus and the Bible and God and anything to do with that. Um, Whenever my friend would sort of talk about Jesus or kind of look like he was about to talk about Jesus, his dad would say, if you go there, if you carry on this conversation about Jesus, I will leave the room. And many times the dad would just stand up and walk out. Hostile, really hostile to the good news. His illness progressed, right? He got really sick. His illness progressed. In the last few months of his life, he said this, Your mother has changed since she called herself a Christian. I don't think she could have coped in the way she's coped or been kind in the way she's been kind if she hadn't turned to Jesus. Go on then. Tell me about your Christianity. Isn't that a magnificent testimony of God's kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and patience and love? So for the last few months of his dad's life, he sat with his dad and read the Bible with him, shared the good news. And guess what, brothers and sisters? He turned to Christ. And they'll be reconciled in glory. 
You don't know, wife or husband, if your spouse will be saved. You don't know. So stick with it. Keep living for Jesus. Keep loving like Jesus. Even though it's challenging, no doubt. Let me wrap it up a little bit. The call of this section is that if you're someone who who's come to know Jesus, who's been saved by the grace of God, who's been gripped by God's radical, magnificent mercy, then you are called to honour God with your body. He's purchased your body. They're not yours. They're not our bodies now to use selfishly. We are to use our bodies to serve everyone around us. That's the big call. We've got to be realistic, though, about marriage, of course. Let me go back to Esther Perel. Esther Perel, you know, who wrote that book, The State of Affairs. Um, she, she's asked all the time, but why, why are divorce rates so high, Esther? Why are marriages breaking down? She's not a Jesus follower, but listen to what she says. It's on the screen. Relationships are crumbling under the weight of people's expectations. He or she has to be your passionate lover, your intellectual equal, the best parent, your best friend and be able to maintain a sense of mystery and awe and transcendence besides. It's amazing. That's exactly what Adele says about me. It's incredible. Um, you must have had a chat, I reckon. Hey, Esther and I know. You get the sense, like, you know, like, every, like all this incredible, you know. Then she goes on. I deliberately use religious language. For in the 21st century, the soulmate is what people used to seek out in religion, and the expectation is... Crushing. Isn't that interesting? She's not a Christian. But she says, you know, that people used to have friends. Isn't that amazing? Yeah? You got friends? Oh, I don't have any. No. People used to have friends. Wow. People used to have family. People used to have a marriage. People used to have work. People used to have a, a living faith in God. All the, but, not, but not all collapsed into one. The one. Now we're collapsing it all into one person with unrealistic expectations. No individual can stand that. The older I get, the more I realise that life is all about um, expectations versus reality. Anyone experience that? You know, so for example, I come home each day and I expect my children, I've got three beautiful children, nine, six and three, I expect them all to be sitting there, you know, bathed in their jammies, Look, and, well, and I walk in the door, oh, Dad, it's so lovely to see you. You know, oh, Dad, it's so lovely to see you. Oh, Dad, it's so lovely to see you. That's what I expect. I walk in, and like they're naked, and there's food all over the table. It's nuts. And so what do I do? I go, rah. I get grumpy. If I, only I walked home going, expecting nudity, food everywhere, you know, like, I would be much reality versus expectations. Marriage, mar I think Esther's a bit right. We, have, we load up this one person to be everything. And we think that marriage is going to fulfill me and be the thing that, and it's good, right? It's a good gift. We've got to be realistic about marriage. Brothers and sisters, marriages are not Jesus. They're not they will disappoint when Jesus will never disappoint. But serving your spouse within your marriage is one way you can honour the Lord with your body. It's not the only way, but it's one way. 
And God's also placed us, yeah, in a church family. We honour the Lord by caring for the whole family. I don't know, as I conclude, maybe some of us need to be encouraged this morning. We looked at this a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. You know, we've all made mistakes, yeah? I mean, I've made mistakes, massive mistakes. I mean, you're looking at a particularly flawed pastor, and I'm looking at a bunch of flawed and foible-filled people. We've all made mistakes, especially when it comes to how we've used our bodies. But that whole section begins with this wonderful truth. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Some of you were sexually immoral, amongst other things. But how's this? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's forgiveness from the Lord that is fresh today. There needs to be forgiveness in your marriages if you're married. My marriage There needs to be forgiveness in the church family between the marrieds and the unmarrieds and the unmarrieds and the marrieds. Forgiveness, right, from God that empowers us to have another go at serving the Lord with our bodies and honouring him. Shall I pray and ask God to help us to do that? Let's pray together. As the band comes up, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Along with the truth of your word, we pray that you'd be at work within us this morning, persuading us of this truth if we're struggling, helping us to live your way if we're finding it hard. Father, by your spirit, help us to bear with others as we navigate life together. Father, how we need one another. Lord, we recognise that perhaps we are, we are looking for all the things we have in Jesus and all the good gifts you've given us through him in places which aren't in Christ. So Father, forgive us for that and help us to centre our lives afresh on the person and work of Christ and find in him contentment and satisfaction and joy. For those of us here this morning who are married, thank you for our marriages. Help us to live out your truth in our marriages. For all of us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, help us to honour you with our bodies for our good and the glory of your name. And this we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.